Hello and welcome to this ACE Oncocast, updates on oncogene-driven non-small cell lung cancer from the World Conference on Lung Cancer, WCLC, in Vienna. My name is Rob Coleman, and I'm a medical oncologist at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom. I'm really pleased to be joined today by two lung cancer experts, Dr. Michael Thomas from Thorax Clinic at Heidelberg University Hospital in Germany, and Dr. Paul Paik from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for taking time to join me today. In today's ACE Oncocast, our experts will provide updates presented at WCLC on targeting Medexon 14 skipping mutations and will assess the impact of new data on clinical practice. The program at the World Conference in Lung Cancer was exciting and many new data and updates were presented related to diagnostics and management of lung cancer. Our discussion today, though, is going to focus on oncogene-driven advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Specifically, we will discuss new data related to targeted therapy for MET and KRAS G12C altered non-small cell lung cancer and osimertinib resistance and consider new findings presented at the meeting and their possible effects on future clinical practice. So to get us started, let us briefly evaluate how the treatment landscape for non-small lung cancer has changed with the introduction of broad molecular testing to ensure we give the right treatment to the right patient. Paul, can you summarize this? And in particular, explain the importance of using broad molecular profiling to detect rare molecular drivers such as MEDX14 skipping mutations, amongst others, for which we, we now have targeted treatment and we'll be discussing later. Oh, sure. Broad molecular testing really is at the heart of the diagnostic process for patients with all non-small cell lung cancers at this point. There are just so many different alterations that are clinically actionable that we have to test for something like aid, including a couple of different kinds of EGFR mutations, prsg 12 c mutations, ALK fusions, right fusions, ROS1 fusions, track fusions, medical skipping alterations. These are some of the things that we're going to talk about, I think, during the course of this uh, discussion, and none of this can really be done efficiently without a single assay. There just isn't enough tumor material that's there. Um, and if new targets are identified, of course, in the rationale for broad molecular testing, will only increase. I think the other thing that sort of helps in this process is the advent of ctDNA testing, um, because it really greatly simplifies the process for certain patients who either don't have a tumor biopsy available or for whom this is sort of a difficult burden to undergo. Thank you. And Thomas, is, is your approach in Germany similar? Yeah, absolutely. And as uh, Paul just mentioned, it's important uh, to provide, at least upfront, if, for instance, diagnose metastatic disease, to provide upfront broad-scale testing, uh, uh, NGS-based at best, and here to, uh, to uh, bring it forward, have DNA NGS and RNA NGS, and then you have the full information on the molecular landscape and potential target, targets to tackle. Thank you. So turning to MET inhibitors, there are, there are two selective MET inhibitors approved in Europe and the United States for patients harboring MEDX14 skipping mutations. There's topotinib based on results from the phase two cohort of uh, the vision trial and capmatinib based on the phase two geometry trial. Michael, at the oral session on targeted therapy during the conference, you presented new results for the confirmatory cohort C in the vision trial. Can you please remind us 
of the vision trial design and what were the main findings from the analyses you presented? Yeah, absolutely. So vision comprised uh, two cohorts and the first cohort, which has been called A, that already has been published uh, in very early times with 99 patients, uh, enrolled patients predominantly in second and third line. And of course, patients uh, with uh, in, in first line treatment, treatment naive patients could be enrolled there as well. Uh, and when code A had been fully executed, fully enrolled, a uh, confirmatory code started entitled code C. Uh, and uh, this WLCLC, uh, the data on code C, had been ready for presentation with a minimum follow-up of nine months of patients enrolled here. And code C comprised 161 patients. And there has been a very favorable response rate in the total cohort with um, 54% response rate and the median duration of response in total cohort C of 28 months, median progression-free survival 13, eight months, and median overall survival 18, eight months. And in particular, to mention here, uh, the cohort has the same inclusion criteria as cohort A. And in particular to mention uh, the rate of brain metastasis patients, positive patients, um, upfront diagnosed has been 21%. And a particular feature in cohort C has been that the um, highest proportion of patient has been diagnosed by tissue positivity. And this comprised um, three quarters of the patient population. This has been a little bit different in comparison to cohort A here, a higher amount of liquid biopsy-proven patients have been enrolled in, and uh, the high proportion of tissue-positive patients enrolled in cohort C enabled uh, to do uh, ad additional analysis in tissue-positive patients. And here it could be shown that, for instance, uh, tissue-positive patients enrolled upfront treatment naive uh, provided a very good um, efficiency readout with an overall response rate overriding 60% in those patients and the median duration of response not reached yet and median overall survival of uh, 22 months, which is a very favorable outcome result uh, on this part of the patient population. As you say, very good results. And you mentioned that there were quite a few patients with brain metastases. What was the objective response rate in those intracranial lesions? Yeah, well, um, so uh, in, in, in vision, uh, an additional attempt has been made to reach out for patients across cohorts, across cohort A and C, uh, that provided the opportunity to do an evaluation according to RANO-BM criteria, to have a very concise assessment in terms of brain efficiency. And this has been possible in the total vision trial on 43 patients. And here to, uh, here to say that uh, the outcome in those patients uh, has been um, very favorable. Intracranial disease control rate in those 43 patients has been 88% and intracranial medium progression-free survival has been uh, almost 21 months. And in those 43 patients were 15 with target lesions. And here really response rate could be assessed and response rate to report here has been uh, two thirds. So 66% showed an intracranial response with those patients with target lesions, intracranial median duration of response not reached yet. Though this is um, you know, giving evidence that tebotinib is even working in patients with brain metastasis. 
Great. So really robust uh, data, durable efficacy of uh, topotinib. I guess the question first to you, Michael, is how is this going to impact on how this agent is used in routine clinical practice? Well, those patients with uh, CMID exon 14 skipping alterations usually are a little bit older than uh, the usual population that we see. They have a median age over 70, um, might carry comorbidities, um, and uh, here then it's good, you know, if you could avoid chemotherapy or could, or could avoid side effects uh, that are associated with chemotherapy, it's always better to have a different option. And here, uh, TKI treatment is, for instance, tebotinib um, that we have John, just seen this WLCLC is a good option. And personally, I would have the preference to already start in first line as the first line uh, data uh, are very promising and provide it here towards the respective patient population. Thank you. And Paul, what's your take on these data? Sure. You know, I think really practically this depends on how it is that the different drugs are approved in, in different regions uh, in the country. So you know, in the United States, we've been blessed because the FDA approved a partner in a line agnostic fashion. So we've already been using it in the upfront setting for all of the reasons that Michael had mentioned is really important on a sort of patient-specific uh, level. But there are limitations to this. For example, in the EU, it's, you know, you may approve this only as a second-line therapy and beyond. But hopefully over time, as, as we aggregate more data together, perhaps this will begin to shift. But you know, NCCN guidelines, for example, recommend providing this as soon as frontline therapy. So that's ultimately, I think, how the data uh, have parsed out over time, uh, especially with the cohort C data that uh, Michael had presented. Thank you. And, and capmatinib obviously is the other currently available specific MET inhibitor. Uh, there were some real-world data presented at WCLC, which I think confirmed the results of the previous phase two data. Um, Paul, can you comment on, on what was presented at WCLC and, and do you see any important differences or, or are they interchangeable, these two agents? Sure. So the so real-world retrospective analysis that was presented for Capmatinib was exactly that. It's a set of real-world retrospective data. And, and as far as that goes, it sort of showed similar activity as what had seen been seen in the prospective geometry 101 uh, study, which ultimately is good. It's, it's great. Um, one of the focuses that they had was on CNS activity. That's always quite popular these days to try to vet out. And none of this stuff was done prospectively in either vision or or geometry. And here they showed an intracranial response rate of 46%. I think one of the issues though in the poster is that it's not entirely clear how many of those have been previously radiated. And that always is a big variable in terms of really, um, rigorously assessing what CNS activity is from the drug versus sort of past effects of radiation therapy. Um, so I think overall, it's another set of data. It's reassuring that the real world data match up with the prospective data, um, but it's still retrospective data. And so, you know, sort of a second tier when it comes to the uh, phase two prospective data that we've seen. So Michael, you're involved in the MOMENT registry, which we heard about at the meeting to collect real world clinical data from patients with metexon skipping 14 mutations in routine clinical practice. Can you tell us what kind of data are being collected and, and who's going to be participating? Yeah, MOMENT is a prospectively designed uh, registry um, employing to collect real-world data. Uh, this uh, in 50 different sites uh, in North America, Canada, and Europe. 
prospectively means uh, that uh, the comprehensive genetic landscape uh, should be documented even with co-alterations, then the clinical phenotype of the patients and uh, the respective treatments that the patients receive over line. It's a longitudinal approach to characterize patients over treatment lines to learn uh, which um, you know, is the course of disease, uh, with which types of treatment patients are going to benefit at best, uh, and what is the clinical readout here, and saying that uh, the imaging data are uh, stored centrally and are assessed according to RESIST criteria in addition. So it's a very deep phenotyping that MOMENT is providing prospectively, and the target accrual is 700 patients. Well, that'll be a fantastic resource for what is a pretty uncommon condition, so uh, very exciting. Uh, Paul, any, any final words on strategies for targeting metexon 14 skipping lesions, uh, which we may hear about at future meetings? Any insights that you'd like to share? Yes, there's early phase work using metantibodies along with antibody drug conjugates that target met. These are drugs um, like amivantamab that we've heard about, for example, um, and Regeneron has a met-man antibody also. And then things like Teliso-V, which is an antibody drug conjugate. Um, and in terms of the early phase data that were presented, there clearly is a signal of activity in Medexon 14 skipping positive lung cancer patients. The sample sizes are much too small for us to really make heads or tails, uh, particularly as they relate to TKI-based strategies. But it will be very interesting to see as these data mature, how good they are, and in particular, how it is that we might be able to sequence these antibody-based strategies with TKI-based strategies using drugs like uh, tapotinib and kibatinib. Well, thank you, Paul and Michael. This was an excellent discussion, and thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for the next ACE Oncocast as we discuss updates on targeting KRAS G12C mutations in non-small cell lung cancer.